0: And welcome this morning, and this springtime Saturday morning. Boy, I'll tell you what, we waited forever, and it looks like it might finally be here. I hope you're enjoying the weather, I hope you've enjoyed the last couple of days. Man, I'm not sure if springtime is. It's certainly not here from the calendar standpoint, I guess. But I'll tell you one thing. It's here from the weather standpoint. That's all I care about. I'm not worried one bit about the uh, about the calendar at all, just simply the weather. But welcome to the show. we got an interesting one, we think, for you this week. And uh, we're going to be covering everything from Alaskan halibut fishing, which I know a lot of folks are interested here because you're planning those trips to Alaska this summer. You want to know, A, where you can go. And B what's happening to the uh, the halibut up there from a, uh, a harvest standpoint, a size standpoint, all of those things we'll talk about today with uh, a Utah who is on the council that helps sets the reg- the regulations for, for sport fishing for halibut ha- uh, harvest up in Alaska. So we'll talk about that. That'll probably help you a little bit. Maybe consider where you want to go for this year, as far as size is concerned with fish, and then of course uh, the harvest limits as well. Because if you're going to spend the money to go to Alaska, especially if you're going for the halibut, um, you want to go to a place where you can bring some home. And boy, it is changing up there on a regular basis year by year. So we're going to talk about that today and kind of maybe give you some information as you go into some of these the expos which uh, outfitters use to book their trips. You may as well have some knowledge as to what's happening in their area of the state of Alaska because the difference in certain areas, uh, for example, between southeast Alaska and then um, you know up in the Homer area, those are significant in terms of size and in terms of, um, of bag limits as well. We'll talk about that. We'll talk, obviously, with George and uh, Gary to talk about fishing here in the state of Utah. But our first segment, we're going to bring in Daniel Olson, who is the Migration Initiative Coordinator for the state of Utah with the uh, Division of Wildlife Resources and um, something new. You know, DWR is bringing in a lot of new and innovative ideas which are involving the public, not only with uh, helping with what they're doing, but also just knowing how the game is managed, how it's tracked, how things are are determined, how seasons are set, how bag limits are set here in the state of Utah. And this new website, which the uh, Division of Wildlife Resources introduced uh, Thursday, March the 5th, Uh, excuse me, I guess it was Tuesday. You know what? I'm going to find out by just going right to the source. I know it was this past week that it was introduced, and let's bring in Daniel Olson. Uh, Daniel, when was the website? Uh, Welcome to the show, and then tell us a little bit about how it can involve people uh, who can get a much better idea of what's going on with our uh, game and fish here in the state of Utah. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Yeah, so the website's brand new um, this week. Um, and it's it's a way for the public and, and our and the folks that we work with at DWR to be able to see some of the this cool and exciting uh wildlife tracking data that that we're producing at the Division of Wildlife right now. Um so and and it and it, it kind of gives you an explanation of, of what our migration initiative is. It's essentially a statewide effort um, to better understand how our wildlife are using their habitats throughout the state and where some of these really important areas are um, that wildlife use every year to get between their summer and winter areas. So it's based
0: on uh, whether you've got fish that are implanted with uh, with transmitters, or you've got radio collars on big game animals around the state. And it debuted their website debuted on Tuesday. I finally got that right. Uh, correct. Let, let's talk yeah. about uh, well, let's talk about first of all how folks can access it and what they're going to find when they access the website.
1: Okay, so they can go to wildlifemigration.utah.gov or you can just type in uh, Utah wildlife migration in Google and it'll be the first thing that comes up. Um, but what they'll be able to, to see there is kind of an explanation of, of why it's important to understand wildlife movements and, and have some some examples, some videos of, of things that we've done to document interesting wildlife movement. And also, they'll also be able to see some interactive maps that show where migration corridors are at, um, um, which are really critical right now um, with as fast as the state is growing, we know that some of our species have to move long distances between summer and winter areas, and it gets harder every year um, as as the roads get busier and as housing developments pop up. And so, having this knowledge of of, of where animals are moving um, helps us work to to make it sure that make sure they can still make those movements in the future.
0: Now you've got thousands of animals, literally from the bear, bighorn sheep, uh, elk, moose, mountain goats, mule deer, uh, antelope, and cougars, all of which have the uh, transmitters on them. Correct, and then you've got fish species, which Utah, I believe, is the only state that includes fish in terms of their their transmitters as well. And real time, people can kind of take a look and see where this where specific animals are. Correct.
1: That's that's correct. So. Um we really there's some really incredible things happening with with wildlife tracking right now. Um the technology has gone to the point where we can essentially put a GPS tracking device on almost any species that that we want to now, um which provides us really precise data of, of what animals are doing throughout the year and between years. And as far in Utah we the, the effort we've, we've really ramped up our effort to get these tracking devices out on animals. And so just just this past winter, from about the end of November, um, uh, through through the first part of March, we put out thirteen hundred tracking devices on on big game big game animals such as deer and elk and big horn sheep and pronghorn.
0: That is amazing that you've got so many things out there. Now, uh, I mean, there are dozens and dozens of reasons to, uh, to do this, but one of them that people maybe not think about is when you're putting uh, wildlife crossings and things of that nature in an area, you can kind of look for patterns for big game where they'll cross a road or something to help mitigate maybe the roadkill, the numbers of animals that are lost to cars. So there, there are all kinds of different implications, aren't there, to knowing where migration routes are throughout the state
1: absolutely so especially with with our mule deer what we're seeing is that our deer do the same things every year and so that they use these same corridors um um, every year to get back and forth between their summer and winter ranges and and that the reason that information is helpful is then we can we can see where these these migration corridors intersect with roads and areas where we have lots of wildlife vehicle collisions and we can, we can take that information and work with the Department of Transportation um, to get things like wildlife crossings put in those locations. And it's really critical that they're, they're placed in the right spots because they, they cost a lot of money. So you may have saw the story um, last year, about the new wildlife crossing that's up on Parley Summit, if if you're on I-80 going from Salt Lake and mm-hmm. uh, to Park City, um, so that, that one structure w- was about five million dollars. So it's really critical that we we get those in the right locations, and and the tracking data helps us really be able to place them precisely.
0: Let's talk about some of the fish species, because most of them, uh, from what I saw, were endangered-type species, Um, razorback suckers, Colorado pike minnows, flannelmouth sucker, bluehead sucker, june sucker, but you've got uh, cutthroat trout in there as well, so an opportunity, uh, the reason I'm sure is obvious for a lot of the endangered species, but you've got the game species, well, with cutthroat, to kind of find out where they're going, And, um, and that's one of those things that I guess is an ongoing especially in the Colorado and the Green River drainages where you've got those potential endangered species that you want to find out how they're doing.
1: Right, yeah. So the, the tracking data for fish is really interesting, too, because it's done a little bit different way. So we, we put a, a essentially like a, a chip inside, and it gets implanted inside the body of the fish. And then when the, the fish swims up the river or down it, we have, we have an, antennas at certain places on the rivers and that, that detects where that, that fish is at. Um, but the, the information is the same. It provides us how information on how that animal is using the stream. And then it also helps us detect barriers to their movements. And so one of the things that, that we've been working on for a couple of years with our partners like Trout Unlimited is to better understand cutthroat movements in the Weber River. And, and what we can see is really um, that you can see that fish, there are barriers to movements in that area. So they, they can be things like, like dams or diversions, or even culverts that are just too long. The water flowing through the culvert is at such a high velocity that the fish can't move up through the culvert. And so the tracking data really helps us identify where these barriers are at. And so that's one of the cool things you can find on our website is we, we have a GIS map, an interactive map, where you can see where all these locations, um, where all these barriers to fish movement are and 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 um by having these, these locations documented that helps us to be able to work with folks to to open the streams back up
0: I know you've you've found some really interesting things that I'm sure you weren't uh, planning on and aware of. One of the things I saw in the release, that there are deer that swim almost a mile across Flaming Gorge as part of their annual migration. You know, uh, people have not seen deer swim a lot of people, but uh, they obviously do. But to swim a mile on an annual basis across the gorge is kind of a strange migration pattern, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so that, that that's an interesting story. So, we had, um, our former director a few years ago was on Flaming Gorge. He was out fishing, and they had a group of like three or four mule deer swim right by their boat. <laughs> and so we we knew the deer deer were doing that, um, but we didn't we didn't ha- we hadn't documented why they were doing it, where they were going, and how they were doing it. So um, we we got GPS tracking collars on on deer in that northeastern part of Utah. Um, kind of out there by Flaming Gorge. And uh, we saw that that some of them are swimming across a mile of open water. They're going from Utah across Flaming Gorge and into Wyoming, and that's where they spend the summer. And so that, that's one of the interesting things that, that we found so far um, by having GPS tracking collars on these animals. It seems like that this would affect hunters as well. I mean, if
0: you're looking at an area of the state perhaps for, to put in a tag for deer hunting or elk or whatever, this would give you some kind of an idea about at least the tag population and their behaviors. And, and I would sure assume that that kind of information is invaluable to you.
1: Yeah. Yep. And so I think some of the people that are most interested about how our game species move are our hunters. They they just love them and they they want to know as much as they can and understand those species. And so the tracking data and the maps that we're providing help help folks better understand these species that they love so much.
0: And I understand on the other side of that, um, you've actually been able to use the GPS tracking system uh, to help against poaching. Uh, you've actually caught a hunter that was uh, aided by the GPS situation. You were able to find out who it was uh, poaching.
1: Yeah. So um, one of the the tracking collars that we put on um, are able to detect when, when they're not moving. And so as soon as the Collar stops moving, then they give us a notification that the animal has probably died, and we try to try to recover those collars within 24 hours. And we we and to, the reason why we do that is we're trying to identify how the animal died, mm-hmm. and so whether it was either starvation or it was killed by a predator or killed in a vehicle collision. um that If we get there quick enough, we can we can kind of determine what these causes are, and having an understanding of, of what the mortality causes are help us manage these species better. Um, but we, as far as the poaching goes, yeah, it it helped us um, make a case on a bear poacher. Um, we could see, uh, or by the way, this bear was moving, so we were monitoring its its movements in real time, and we could see that this bear was going back to the same location every day, which indicated it was probably using a bait station, and so our officer saw that and went and investigated and found out that um, there was a hunter using an illegal bait station, um, so we were able to to make a case. Now, let's, ta- that
0: let's talk about what a hunter needs to do if they do harvest an animal that has uh, a collar on it, uh, uh, big game or whatever, uh, what they need to do. First of all, I, I would assume that if there's an opportunity not to use that to, to harvest an animal that has a collar, if you see it, you probably should try and pass it up if you can, because there's cost involved, obviously, in capturing the animal, then collaring it, and uh, and doing all of that. But if you do there's a cost to the collars as well significant cost that you want to be able to retrieve those collars and reuse them
1: right so that that's a great question so the we in general we're we're asking folks to to not harvest animals with tracking collars if they can and so sometimes you you don't see the collar or that's it it's the buck that you've been tracking all year that's the one you want to harvest so it's still legal to harvest an animal with the collar but we just discourage it um because the tracking collars cost about $1100 and we're we're it costs us about five or six hundred dollars to capture the animal, and so there's significant cost um, associated with each animal with the collar in addition once the animal's harvested, we don't get their movement data anymore, um, which is really the the most valuable part to to be able to document what they're doing um because it affects how how we manage these species into the future. <laughs>
0: Well, Daniel, we sure appreciate you joining us this morning. I think it's fascinating and it's going to be a great opportunity for people to see where animals are in the state, where they're going. And then just to, to, to have a look at, uh, you know, the movements for a bear, for example, or a cougar or, or the other animals that are involved in the collaring situation. Tell them again, how do they have the access? It just went, you just went online with this last Tuesday. And so great. it is first, uh, I mean, it's brand new.
1: Brand new. Yep. So if, if they need to go to wildlifemigration.utah.gov, or you could just in your browser, in your in Google, in your browser, you could just enter um, Utah Wildlife Migration, and it'll be the first thing that comes up. Fascinating
0: stuff. We appreciate it. Uh, Good luck on the website, and thanks for providing that access for all of us. I think it's going to be some fascinating uh, uh, data that you get and going to be really interesting for anybody who loves the outdoors and loves our animal and fish population here in the state.
1: Absolutely.
0: Thanks for having me on, Steve. You bet. That's Daniel Olson with the Division of Wildlife Resources, the Migration Initiative Coordinator. Fascinating stuff to see how the animals in this state move and how they change their migration patterns from uh, the time of year and also from what's going on around them housing developments, roads, things of that nature. Listen, we're going to step aside. When we come back, we'll talk to George and we'll talk to Gary. and We'll find out what's going on as we start to approach spring-like conditions, or at least for a while, for our fisheries
2: and
0: And we are back on this Saturday morning. We might have a bad moon rising, but we got a nice sunrise, I'll tell you that. Welcome back to the show, everybody, and without further ado, let's just bring in George Summer to talk a little bit about what's going on. Boy, George, the weather is popping, and the fish are starting as well.
3: Exactly. You know, it's a, we 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 keep getting these teasers, nice warm <laughs> weather, and then we get rain and snow. Yeah. But uh, the, the fishing is actually, I think, we're moving into finally into spring. And I think the fish have recognized that, and and the fishing's actually picked up, and and things are pretty much everywhere you go are decent or good.
0: Got I mean we got several places that have really decided to turn on as well. We've had a couple that have been consistent through the winter, and we've got now many that are joining them as well.
3: Oh, exactly. You know we we've uh, um, if you're going to go ice fishing, uh, Pine View for perch is still on fire. Um, if you want to go trout fishing through the ice, Rockport has been really good for some nice fish, and East Canyon. Um, those are all close. Uh, and then, if you want to go open the water, uh, Minersville. We talked about that uh, I think last week or the mm-hmm. week before. It, it's ice off, and the, the fish are cruising the bank, and, and people are catching them from the bank with a fly rod. So, and some really, really nice, good-looking fish.
0: We also talked last week about the whitefish, especially on the Weber River, and I guess the white fishing has just really popped up, especially as the sun has been hitting some of those pools now.
3: Exactly. You know, I saw some reports of some, and they're mixed. You know, so you catch whitefish, and somewhere in that same pool, you might catch a brown or a rainbow. But the the fishing is picked up. Um, and, and then, you know, there's, there's hatches coming off. So it's, it's an incredible time to be out. You just got to, the challenge is choosing where do I want to go and what do I want to (laughs) catch?
0: Hey, I like that kind of challenge.
3: Me too. You know, it's, it's nice and, and it gives you a lot of opportunities. you just got to, you know, pick and pick which one you want to go to and, and a plan accordingly. Um, But uh, I don't think you can go wrong just about anywhere right now.
0: And obviously, a word of caution, if you are ice fishing, be aware, especially with these sunny days, that in the afternoon, coming off the ice is going to be a challenge in several places.
3: It has been. You know, it melts the edges first, because that's right up against the bank. And then some of our reservoirs are winter fill reservoirs. So you should plan on automatically having a plank with you at this time of year. Just so, because otherwise you're going to get wet, and depending on where you access, that wet might be over your head. We don't want to see that. Yeah. I'm sure. The person doing it doesn't want to see it either. You
0: know, I haven't heard of a lot of uh, fall throughs this winter, which I think is good news. And typically, you don't get a lot. A lot of people I know talk to me and say, "Wow, ice fishing—it's so dangerous." It can be, just like anything else. But this winter, I think has been pretty good, at least as far as the the numbers I've heard. Very few people have gone through the ice, and I it, obviously we love to hear that—the fewer, the better. And maybe some yeah. of them haven't been reported, but I think people are starting to kind of figure it out a little bit. Even novices. Uh, it's not anything to play about with when you're out on the ice.
3: Exactly. You know, Use you know, your, your head. Uh, a little common sense goes a long ways. Make sure you have the right safety equipment. Always a great idea to fish with a buddy. That's what ice fishing is all about, is fishing with friends. Um, so, you know, you go out on the ice first or you, well, what we always do is send our, our friend out on the ice. Send
0: the first. fat guy out first.
3: Yes, and <laughs> if they don't fall through, hey, we're good to go. <laughs> um, otherwise, you're, you're back on the bank to rescue them, but, you know, it's always a good idea to, to go in doubles or or multiples. So and you know, send one person out. Everything's good. Um, you know, go out. Don't everybody jump on the ice at once. And. And then you've got 10 of you in the the water. But ice fishing is a social sport, so, you know, grab that buddy and
0: go ice fishing. I told you that's the reason Huey and I have fished for so many years. He's our lead dog right there. He's always on the ice. We send him out first uh, with a rope tied around his waist. It, uh, it's always just, just a good insurance policy, and so far it's worked. I've stayed dry. But in fairness, so has he, so that's the good news, I guess. George, thanks. Yeah. As always, it's great to talk to you. I appreciate the update, and uh, we'll talk with you again next Saturday morning sounds good thanks Steve take care George Summer, our weekly contributor talking uh, about all kinds of places across the state right now if you want to fish it's an easy easy thing to find the right place to do that boy it just seems so much more appropriate to have this music when the sun is out and the weather is warm and everything else Gary Winterton, Mr. Hookdown, Utah, standing by with us this morning. GW, how you doing, brother? You've got to be happy. That smile on your face and that red hair and freckles and sunshine, it doesn't get much better than that.
2: Oh, I'm not going to lie to you. You know what? I got the boat out just the other day to do a little prepping and cleaning <laughs> after our trip. And I just laid on the front deck in the sun and soaked in as much vitamin D as I possibly could. And my wife was looking for me, came and found me just snoozing on the bow of the boat. Awesome. Well,
0: you were probably cleaning it up because that guy that you had from, uh, from the radio station came on board with those uh, muddy shoes and got mud on the carpet of that beautiful <laughs> Lund.
2: Might have he, yeah. <laughs> he? Might have taken the snowy muddy trail instead of walking the pavement. Said, Who cares? That's yeah. what vacuums are for.
0: Yeah. Well, anyway, it paid off for us, didn't it? Uh, and what we're talking about to the audience is I had a chance to fish with Gary this past week as we went to uh, one of my favorite places, Deer Creek, for the first time in the season. Fished soft water, and man, we did all right.
2: Yeah, what a blast! I'm going to tell you, Steve, um so much fun and and. You, you truly have opened my eyes to Deer Creek in terms of trolling because you and Huey have it down. You guys hit it 30 times a summer. <laughs> it's and so close. So yeah, yeah maybe even more than that. And so you really know kind of the ins and outs and, the, and how to troll it. And it, it was, I, I've become, it's become one of my favorites because it's close and it holds quality trout, quality walleye, quality bass. It's got it all. And... So we, we really did well. We had a good time. It was kind of
0: fun. Yeah, the fish the fish there. I mean, the division has done such a great job. I think with the fishery, as far as the balance of the lake, you find healthy fish. There are no skinny snake fish in that lake. Every species that you're gonna catch, from walleye to you know to uh, uh, rainbow to the brown trout and the, and even the bass in there, every species is basically healthy. Now the smallmouth aren't real big. Occasionally you get a nice one, and there's still some large mouth hanging around that are pretty decent, but every fish looks well-fed, and we certainly found some really good-looking trout.
2: Yeah, you know, the, the trout that we caught, even the smaller ones, Steve, were just fat little footballs. They're thick, and when you grab them, you know, you kind of put your hands around them. They're strong and powerful, and you'll notice sometimes you'll fish lakes where you catch a... It doesn't matter, you know, uh, you know anything from brown trout to tiger trout to brook trout, they're weak. You can tell when you grab them; they just kind of feel mushy. I love Deer Creek trout because the water's so fertile that they're they are really strong. I mean, they've been hit that hard, and we had a lot of success trolling um, your famous stuff—a squid, pink squid, or a pink Max wedding ring, which I learned from you—with a flasher tipped with a little bit of nightcrawler. That just produces at Deer Creek.
0: Yeah, I gotta tell the folks too. When you fish with Gary, you know, most of us when you fish with a worm, you use your thumb and you know, thumbnail and you break the thing in half or even in thirds or whatever. When you go with Gary, he's got a pair of scissors. Gary cuts the the, the tip off his, his worm. I mean, you know, you've got a nice clean cut, which works out pretty well because you get about four or five of the uh, of the little tip worms per worm and where with breaking it you get one or two at the most maybe three but but i just want to tell you he is a surgical it's precision surgery when you go with gary because he's got that pair of scissors to make that nice clean snip on the worm i just want to let folks know that because you never show that on on your show and i think one of these days why it needs to take pictures of that i it just it's one of those little idiosyncrasies i just wonder how much um you know how much you're anal retentive at home. Uh, are you are you are you are you just involved with the with the single you know the very very specific uh, parts of a chore? Because I certainly see it when we fish.
2: Well, Steve, there's even some more weirdness there too, and that is <laughs> I believe that, that normally normally I will actually take my worms before we go. Yes, I'll dump them out. I'll wash them off, and then I'll put them in newspaper. <laughs> in the thick container so that i don't have all that black dirt in the boat that's and true. All over your hand and then i do like cutting it because you grab them and you can cut a clean cut keeps you out of the dirt but it gives you you know it's like all right i only want you know a quarter inch and so think you cut it and then when the worm relaxes you get that perfect you know half inch stretched out and threaded up the hook versus trying to pinch and tear, and, and then, you know, when you pick your nose or put your fingers in your mouth... That's you true.
0: Your thumbnail worms. is cleaner. I, I will definitely yeah, give you that. Yeah,
2: there's a warm goo on it. So, Be- well, besides that... You know, we were eat- you don't- eating cookies and drinking drinks, and who wants that's that true. in your mouth?
0: But you don't waste the manicure, either. I know that you get that on a <laughs> weekly basis, and so when you go in and get that manicure, it takes that thumbnail off, and you, you're not able to make that pinch move as easily. That's right.
2: That's so true. But you know what, Steve? I'll tell you... At right now, I'm so excited because Deer Creek's wide open. Jordan is melting fast. I know some of these central Utah and kind of southeastern lakes are starting to melt, and it's our favorite time to get the boats out. So I think it's a great time. you got to get your boat out, get it ready to go. You know, just make sure that after you come off the lake, you know, we we drained our boat. We fired up the big motor and the kicker just for a second to blow the water out. And then when you get home, drop your motors down so they drain. You'll have no problem with freezing. And we're not going to get hard freezes now. And, you know, we'll get a little bit. But you don't have that week where it's below 20 or 10 degrees where you can start breaking stuff.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Huey got our boat out this week. I had three stars game, so I could not go after you and I went. Um, you know, I was uh, I was SOL for the remainder of the week. But Huey got the boat out again, and we got it registered and everything else. We're fortunate because we stick it in his garage all winter long, so we have just to charge those batteries up. But it's a great time to get out. And even if you don't take it out, if you can get a nice sunny day or you can get it inside a garage to tinker with it, it's, I don't know, there's just something about it. It's kind of like when we had the old opening day, you know, the first weekend in June, and that week before you used to go out, I used to, you know, I'd tie it. A, a, a nice, um, you know, nut on a, uh, on a piece of fishing rod. Cause I couldn't afford a casting plug, but I go out on the street and cast back and forth and practice, you know, you just the anticipation. Well, that's kind of the way it is right now. If you can get to work on that boat, even if you can't get it out for a week or so, the anticipation of getting everything all shined up and cleaned up and lay on the deck and maybe take a nap like Gary, whatever, you know, of course his boat is immaculate. You know, if you're ever going to buy a boat, buy it from a guy like Gary, because Everything is babied, and that boat is, uh, it looks like it's never been on the water. And boy, that Lund is used every week on this program, but it looks like it's brand new.
2: Yeah, I try to make sure that the only thing that touches my boat is the water. You know, you always—it's always amazing when you go and you, you see people back in their beautiful boats, and no matter what it is, and it looks like they've been mixing concrete with the outboard. I'm like, what are you guys doing? And I mean, some people—different strokes for different folks, right? You got it.
0: Just don't let the guys from the radio and TV station on with their uh, muddy shoes. Okay, that's the—that's <laughs> the number one rule. Anyway, hey, my friend, I appreciated the invite this week. I had a lot of fun. Got my strings stretched a little bit, and boy, Deer Creek is on, so anybody looking for a quick trip close... It's as good as it gets right now at Deer Creek. And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of skim ice on in places, but the aluminum boat was fine. And I'm sure by now it's all gone with the sunshine. I'm just grateful that we've got near spring conditions. So, my friend, I'll talk to you next week and i look forward to the show. We should tell folks 1105, uh, 1105 tonight, right after Talking Sports on KU TV Channel 2. It is Hooked on Utah and we'll be taking them to Deer Creek.
2: Absolutely man. I'll talk to you guys next week. Tidelines, get your boat
0: out. We'll see you soon. All right, Gary, take care. listen we're going to step aside. final segment coming up in just a moment. We'll talk uh, about a, uh, a opportunity for you up in Alaska and find out what's going on with the Halibut in particular up there. some more rule changes when you're starting to plan that trip. You might want to take a look at them before you decide on which lodge you're going to spend your money. We'll be back. show on this Saturday morning. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the sunshine and the warm weather and everything attendant with at least a peak at spring. Don't know if we're going to get it to stay for a while. In fact, we're going to get a storm a little bit later this weekend. But hey, right now, the warm before the storm is certainly welcome. I know a lot of folks will be thinking about the expos and the hunting shows and the fishing shows and all the outdoor uh, sportsman shows for this upcoming spring and summer. And this is the time of year I know that a lot of Utah's book their trip to Alaska, Uh, you go up there and get the salmon and and also the halibut. Of course, the halibut is the big thing that a lot of folks want to come and bring back, and it draws a lot of people up there, but every year... The, uh, the regs seem to change up there based on the harvests. You've got commercial fishermen you're competing against. And so every year we bring in our friend from uh, Eagle's Nest Lodge in Gustavus, Alaska, Utah, who owns the lodge, Kent Huff. And uh, he joins us now, but he also sits on the board that helps establish some of the regulations for sport fishing for halibut in Alaska. So he is really on the inside as to what's going on and kind of keeping us all abreast of what's going up there. So, uh, Kent, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you aboard as always, and I imagine there's probably some changes again this year.
4: There is, and uh, you know, and I'll clarify a few things um, along with the changes.
0: Okay, fire away.
4: Okay. If you are in Area 2C, which starts at uh, Cape Spencer, which basically says everything from Juneau, Sitka, Gustavus, Elfin Cove, uh, Ketchikan, uh, everything in southeast Alaska's Area 2C, the regulations are one fish a day, no annual limit. That fish has to be 40 inches and under. Or eighty inches and over to keep.
0: Okay, so nothing in that slot then between forty and eighty.
4: Correct. And uh, the reason why they're doing that is they allocate a uh, the yield that is uh, you're able to take as a sports fisherman and it's not like there's be we're being having it stole from us from the commercial guys because in two thousand ten they combined the charter fleet with the commercial okay. and the charter fleet now gets seventeen point two percent of the total allocation and so whenever they give the uh, the commercial fleet more fish they have to give the charter fleet more fish because it's a
0: percentage and yeah
4: it's a percentage but and so then when you go to 3a which really starts at it starts before that but really from yuccatat all the way up through the kenai peninsula kodiak island all the way through there and You're going to have to take notes on this one. Okay. (laughs) It is. You cannot fish on Tuesdays. It's closed. On Wednesdays, it is closed. Uh, You can only keep four fish a year. It's two fish a day. And the second fish... Has to be under 26 inches or five or six pounds.
0: Wow! So that's that's, that's pretty uh, it's pretty restrictive uh, for that area up north there, and, and that applies obviously if you get the keen eye, you're playing to Homer and um, in that area there, which a lot of folks uh, go out. Now that only applies to charters, uh, correct? If you go out yourself, it's a different reg, correct?
4: Yes, if you go self-guided, state-wise, it's two fish of any size every day.
0: Okay, so if you go if you go to a, a lodge where you can go and uh, go out yourself, you've got the ability to, to take the two fish. Otherwise, you've got to go with the uh, with the charter limitations that are prescribed by the by the regulations this year.
4: That's correct. And for those people, well, I'm just going to go up and go. Self guided. Well, it's just like, you know, you fish strawberry a lot. Yep. I don't. Do you know
0: where to go, right?
4: <laughs> it's a big <laughs> you know, ocean. If you don't know where to go. then you just say, well, there's the water. Uh, you know, it, it, You know, is always catch more fish when you have somebody who knows where to go.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's no question about it. And the thing about it is if you, you know, a lot of folks like to talk about, well, two fish a day versus the one fish a day and things like that. I know in Gustavus, because I fished obviously in your area with you, uh, that, that was, and I assume it still is, perhaps the largest halibut average on the dock on a daily basis in all of Alaska is that area in Gustavus.
4: Yeah, and that's correct. And and the reason why that it is, you know, our average fish is almost twice as big as anywhere else, is because in '95 or it might have been '96, they came in and they kicked all the commercial longliners out of Glacier Bay National Park, and that's where we're at. And so a 20 by 80 mile area of uh, of water uh doesn't have long-liner how- commercial fishing in it anymore.
0: Yeah, and, and that really what- does make a difference.
4: Oh, yeah. We, like I said, our average fish is in that area is almost twice the size of the next closest place anywhere in the state.
0: Yeah, and that is important. But, you know, folks, uh, who it's kind of like people who fish and take their limit home here. You know, a lot of fish winds up being freezer-burned and thrown away. So there is certainly some uh, intelligence to the new regs as well as they go on a yearly basis. Wasting that type of fish is such a crime, I think, to take take it home and then let it freeze or burn because the fresh halibut is so different than what you get. Uh, Even from the the fish market areas of some of our upscale stores, that's still usually been kept a year and hard frozen and then brought down here as quote-unquote fresh caught halibut. Uh, It was fresh at some point in time, but just not two or three days before you're buying it in the grocery store.
4: Well, you know, they leave the skin on it and just cut the take the head and the guts out, and then throw it and stack it like cordwood in the freezers. Mm -hmm. And then when they skin it, then it becomes fresh halibut.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and the difference, obviously, the difference in taste is certainly evident. So if you're going to Alaska, boy, I just encourage you, uh, don't worry about the regs. There's still plenty of meat on a fish that goes, you know, 40 inches in length. That that fish is going to provide you with an awful lot of meat. And then you get the, uh, if you go in the other slot, side of things the 80 and up you know i don't think it's as good in eating fish obviously it doesn't taste to me it doesn't taste as good but boy there's you know you're gonna get 100 you could get 50 to 100 100 and a half pounds on those fish pretty easy when it's all filleted up Um, that 100 pounds of halibut goes a long long way even if you got a big family oh yeah
4: it does (laughs) and and you know 100 pounds that's that's doesn't matter if it's a big family or not. That's yep. pretty hard to eat 100 pounds of halibut. E- yes,
0: it know. is. It gets uh, gets to the point where it starts to get old, literally and figuratively, after that. So uh, you've got the season coming up. Let's talk a little bit uh, about the lodge. Gustavus is one of those lodges. The reason, One of the reasons I loved flying in there was you can fly in on jet service right to the airport, get picked up by the van, and within 10 or 15 minutes, you're at the lodge. And the same thing going out. It makes it really easy. Easy to get your fish uh, and taken home, uh, and also to fly in and out because you've got commercial jet service right there to where you get picked up by the lodge at Eagle's Nest.
4: Yeah, and and we don't just fish halibut. I mean, we sure. fish all five species of salmon and the rockfish and and lingcod, and and we try to make it a combo day every day. You know, the boats are. 28 feet long enclosed cabin. There's a, a flush head on the boat and heaters and and we just provide everything. All you do is bring. I just tell people bring your clothes and your toothbrush. And, <laughs> well, what's not included? Airfare, tips, and alcoholic beverages. And other than that, it's it's all there.
0: Yeah, and I would encourage the toothbrush as A guy who's been on the boat with other people. Uh, <laughs> well,
4: you know, and and people have left theirs. If you forget yours, we have one that you can borrow. <laughs>
0: That's right. That's that's a good incentive to bring your own right there. So. That's it. <laughs> well, you guys provide, I mean, you provide the boots and everything basically for being on board, um, you know, clothing. Yeah, make sure you, you bring adequate clothing. And it is going to get wet. There's no doubt about it. I don't care when you go to Alaska. Uh, I talk to people all the time. that come back off our Alaskan cruise, and they say, you know, I really had a great time. It was beautiful, but I just, I just didn't realize I was thinking on a cruise ship, you know, I'd be out on deck in the sunshine. Yeah, you will be on the sunshine, maybe 55 degrees. Out on the water, it's pretty nippy. So bring the warm clothing and bring the uh, the clothing to get wet because it's going to rain on you.
4: Oh, you know, we're in the rainforest, and so uh, it has a tendency to get a little wet once
0: in a while. <laughs> Talk to me real quickly about uh, about Utah and the Alaskan economy, because uh, there are several, I know, several lodges that are owned by Utahns up there, you, you included. Uh, but you draw a lot of folks from this state that go up on an annual basis, don't you, to Fish Alaska?
4: we do and you know I, I'm right now down in Southern California in Long Beach at the Long Beach Fred Hall Fishing Show I have a booth in here and uh, there's I think five or six Utah based lodges that are in this show down here there's a lot of people that uh, you know from Utah uh, in fact just in Gus Davis uh, there's uh, three that are Utah based lodges. Well one was and now it's it's been sold, but there were at one point there were three in Gustavus and and we get we get accused of trying to take over Alaska and, <laughs> and maybe
0: we are. So. Well, there are worse things that could happen to Alaska as well as have uh, more Utahs up there. I think, you know, that certainly the Lodge business has, uh, it went through its tough times when the economy crashed about seven or eight years ago, but it's rebounding nicely, and if you want to get in and get those prime dates, really the time now is to start and look at booking. I know it seems a long way out in March for a trip, maybe in August, but it isn't because the dates fill up so quickly based on salmon runs and things of that and Nature.
4: Well, to give you an idea, I've got like room for, and this, these aren't groups, I've got room for two people in August and and six people in July wow. and six people in September. I do have some, some open spaces in June, which are king salmon, sockeye, halibut. You know, uh, the lingcod, everything there. Uh, But in June, it's you know, we we I try to book from the middle of the season out so I don't have holes. But right now, uh, probably by the end of the show, I'll have uh, very little spots, maybe nothing in July or August, and and uh, but June is. you know, like I said, if, you're a ki- if you want to catch king salmon, that's the time to come.
0: Yeah, it might not be a bad idea to get online and check out the, uh, not not wait. I know we've got the expo coming up here in a couple of weeks, but you might not want to wait that long. Uh, get online and take a look at Eagle's Nest and and take a look at the availability, depending on what kind of species you want to fish for. It's a lot. Uh, if you wait, you may not find it. You go to the lodge, uh, you go to the, uh, the expo, rather, and find the booth and find that you're booked out for the dates you want so uh, it's probably a pretty good idea to get ahead of the curve but now you know what the the limits are going to be in the area you want to fish in the state of alaska um is great in southeast, let me tell you. Uh, that yeah. I've been all over the state of Alaska, but I love southeast. And if you want to see whales, that's the way to do it. For those who who think, well, I'm going to take an Alaskan cruise and see whales, you're not going to see them from the cruise ship. For one thing, they're prohibited from getting close to them by law. And, um, and secondly, there's something about that floating behemoth that uh, will kind of slow down the whales as they don't want to get close to it. But if you want to see whales, the way to do it is to go to a fishing lodge, get out on a fishing boat, be there, and have them come up right uh, within about 15, 20 yards of you. That's the way to see Alaskan whales, and you don't have to pay for the, for the cruise. You're not going to be on deck, I guarantee you. It's not like you're going to be laying next to the pool on a cruise ship on an Alaskan cruise. It's just not going to happen. So you may as well enjoy it, enjoy the fishing, and get a chance to see some of the wildlife, the bears and the whales, because you're not going to do it from an Alaskan cruise. I guarantee
4: you that. Yeah, and just one quick thing. Uh, salmon. Uh, when you're going to Alaska, make sure you understand what the salmon regulations are yes. in the area that you're going because they're different all over the state. In fact, last year, king salmon, unless there was a fish hatchery on the stream or river, that there was no king salmon fishing anywhere in freshwater in Alaska wow. last year. That And there was a few that were catch and release. But unless there was a fish hatchery, you know, like the Kenai River, I mm-hmm. think, had three or four days that you could keep kings on it last year. And uh, But then you look at all the other species in our area um we're one king a day three for the year but you have to go out to the outer coast in order to catch those um and so which we do anyway that's where the kings are but all of our other salmon are six a day every day no possession limit check the area that you're thinking of going some are two a day for silvers some are you know three a day for silvers uh you know, it's just uh, make sure you understand what you're looking to catch and what the limits are for those that species of fish.
0: All right, my friend. It's always good to hear from you. I hope you have a great season in this year. We'll look forward to seeing you here at the Expo in a couple of weeks. I'll see you then. Hey, thanks, Steve. Okay, Ken Huff with uh, Eagle's Nest Lodge in Alaska. And, and, again, lots of fun. You know, depending on where you want to go in Alaska, things are definitely different. Make sure you understand that where you're going can satisfy what you want as far as your sport fishing experience up there. Listen, uh, we're going to step aside uh, because that's it. That is the end of our hour. We hope you've enjoyed the hour. I want to thank Daniel Olson with the Division of Wildlife, Ken Huff with Eagle's Nest Lodge, Gary Witterton and George Summer. Most importantly, thanks again to you for joining us on this Saturday morning. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Enjoy the fact that maybe, just maybe, we got a breath of spring that's going to stick around for a while. See you next Saturday right here at 97.5 The Zone between 8 and 9 a.m. Until then, take care, everybody. As always, you have been warned.